1: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Truth and movies. Today, I, Tonya, Ice Queen gets me in on big screen in True Life Tale of Tonya Harding and her triple axle of evil. Dark River, farmer drama in Tale of the Dales and sheep rearing Folk and a family flock that'll have you going, you. And American Beauty, bags of excitement too, as Annette Bening, Kevin Spacey and a plastic bag start in Sam Mendes' picture. Is it a classic study of American suburbia or one of the most overrated pictures in history? And if not, what is? All of that and more in this Truth and Movies, A Little White Lies podcast. Super. Listeners, you're joined in this week's guide to what to see and not to see at the cinema by Hannah
3: Woodhead. Hello. And Adam Woodwood. Hello. I'd just like to apologise in advance to producer Matt for having to edit out my sniffles. Mm.
4: Mine too.
2: All right. Such is the emotional nature of some of the storylines that we're going to be (laughs) touching on. Uh, We have three films for you today. We've also got a whole batch of comments. Well, Lewis Allen, for example, saying, I saw an article on the Little White Lies website, com, about after-credit scenes. I know most people stay for the credits when there's a Marvel film, but I get a buzz when there's something left at the end, and most of the other people have done one. I personally see it as a little bonus. Do you guys
3: leave as soon as the credits start to roll? Interesting question. I tend to stick around. Because I like reading the credits, oh, yeah. which is quite boring, I know. But no? the Black Panther was a weird one because haven't seen it yet. That had a, an end credits scene, yeah. which felt like it should have just been in the movie. Oh. Like the, the most powerful for me, the most powerful speech and um, line of dialogue in the movie. Really, is like, in the end is in scene? that end credit? Scene. Really, yeah,
4: in the mid credit. But just, then there's another end. You know, there's like the always the mid credit and the end credit. Was oh, Marvel. is there two there? So yeah. Two. yeah. Justice
2: League, I felt I had one of the best scenes. The, the scene that should have been more what the movie was was an end credit yeah. scene. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, how do you feel about end credits?
4: I think it depends how I felt about the film, really. If exactly. I've enjoyed the film, like, I don't want to leave, so I'll stay. I just got back from Berlin, so I've watched a lot of films this week and I I couldn't have sat through the end credits for all of those. I was just losing my mind a bit.
2: For me, it depends how I feel about the film and, and also how many people are in your row, yeah. to be fair. Yeah, And if you're at the end of the row, you've almost got a moral obligation to stand up in the corridor and that. Interesting question, though, Lewis, an interesting question from last week, was where would you go if you could inhabit any cinematic universe? Jerome Huben replies that as a kid, he always dreamt of hanging out with the kids from The Sandlot. I'm not familiar with The Sandlot.
3: No, I'm not, I must say.
2: It's apparently about a kind of dreamy American suburbia of the early 60s. Mm. Yeah, So
3: sort of spielberg that's somewhere I'd like to travel. I think I just go love to that. Jurassic Park. That would be fun. Oh, that'd be fun before it? it goes. Think, yeah, uh, it'd be fun know. for
4: like ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Sorry, uh, Jerome says I just love that film, uh, The Sandlot to bits. For those who don't know it, check it out. It may be disguised as just another sports movie, but it's much more of a, a hangout film, a bit like Dazed or Confused for kids. Uh, and Dazed and Confused would probably be my second choice, by the way. Huh. Uh, Ravi Sound or Sand has answered this question as well about Cinematic universes, basically by listing every film he's ever enjoyed. Right. (laughs) Uh, Among the interesting ones are the wedding scene at the start of The Godfather which sounds like it'd be a lot of fun to be in and uh, Jack Rabbit Slims in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, Lewis Clare, meanwhile, says, I cannot fathom the love for Lady Bird. Says Lewis, stick with him on this, it's just a bang average coming of age film. In fact, it bears an awful lot of similarities to a former film club entry Pretty in Pink. Wow. Given that I haven't seen Lady Bird yet, what's your answer to that, Hannah?
4: Um, I disagree. I didn't really like Pretty in Pink, so maybe that's why I disagree. But you did Um, like Lady Bird. I love Lady Bird. I think it's, you know, maybe it's uh, not a film that everyone can relate to, but for me it spoke to me a lot Mm -hmm. and... As I said last week, you know, I grew up in a small... Well, Sacramento is not a small town, we've had this argument as well, but I grew up in a a sort of small town. I had a difficult relationship with my mum and um, I went to Catholic school. So for me, you know, on on a very basic level, there were things that I could relate to and I don't think it is average
2: alright Adam you liked it so much you've produced a a range of clothing based on it we
3: have well I can tick none of those boxes Uh of relatability (laughs) but we teamed up with a great t-shirt company called Girls on Tops you may Mm. have seen them they they do really nice white t-shirts with uh, names of female filmmakers and actors on Okay. Uh, we've done a special Greta Gerwig one Ladybird inspired. Nice. She's available now okay. on their Etsy shop. So yeah, do, did you like film? Now that you finished plugging your T-shirt. Now that I finished plugging, yeah, no, I did. Uh, I think I saw it sort of around the London Film Festival, and I just think it's a really beautifully pitched and very, very sort of well realised first feature from Greta Gerwig.
2: Nice one. If you would like to get in touch, by the way, Truth and Movies at TCO London dot com is the email address, or you can find us on Twitter at LW Lies, or well, there's the Facebook page, or there's the kind of comment section hidden away at the back of the Little White Lies website. On to our first film then today, and it is I, Tonya. I, Tonya is the story of Tonya Harding, an American sport's second most infamous act of recent years, the nobbling of her skating rival, Nancy Kerrigan. Here's the moment a four-year-old Tonya, accompanied by her mother, who makes the ice seem warm and mushy, meets a prospective coach.
1: Mrs. Harding.
0: Lavana. it's Levana.
1: I am so sorry, but there's no smoking on the ice.
0: Oh, well, I'll smoke it quietly then. <laughs> this here is my daughter, Tanya.
1: Mrs. Harding, I told you on the phone. I know what
0: you told me, only you never seen her skate.
1: I don't train beginners.
0: All she does is talk about skating all day and night, can't shut her up about it. So it's easier for me to put her on ice, if you know what I mean. And we figure with the right training, she can make the most of her gift, like ice capades maybe one day or something. How old are you, honey? Uh, She's a soft four.
1: Well, she's a very pretty girl, but I'm sorry I don't take on students this young. Now, if you'll forgive me, I have a class waiting.
2: Nice to see Cliff. Getting a Hollywood soundtrack outing there, Hannah. Yeah, you've done a review of this film for Little White Lies, in which you say it's an engaging biopic that doesn't quite stick the landing.
4: Yeah, I think uh, I actually wrote my review way, way, way back in November, and at the time I was quite polite about the film. I have come to enjoy it less cool. in retrospect. Tony Harding's a very interesting character, and she has kind of got this like cult following since the incident as we shall call it but for me the film is very weirdly pitched it's kind of pitched as this like screwball slapstick comedy where this woman who's been systematically abused by the people that she trusts the most for years ends up getting involved in this horrible act and it just treats everything as though it's funny and it, it plays it all for laughs and that's to me is dangerous it's dangerous mm. to present Uh, A man who beats his wife as a bumbling idiot who doesn't know any better. You can tell it was written and directed by a man, which I I always hesitate to say. But I feel like a woman would have probably handled this story very differently. It feels dangerous to me and I'm quite baffled by all the sort of um, success it's had and how people are just sort of skating over this. But at the time you found it entertaining. Watching it, it's framed in this sort of mockumentary style which is quite like it's a very watchable film. The ice skating scenes are really well shot and it is fun in parts. Like Margot Robbie's really, like, really good in it. And Alison Janney is amazing in it, giving this kind of very um
2: She's like Patty or Selma Simpson.
4: <laughs> she is, yeah. She changed Smoky, like, she's got this little like cockatiel that sits on her shoulder the whole film and um it's just yeah, it, I think it's a really fun way of framing it. I mm-hmm. just don't think this film should be fun. Yeah,
2: abuse <laughs> as dark comedy. It's a difficult sell, but it is entertaining while you're watching it. It sets out almost like a Coen Brothers film. There's a kind of almost a Fargo-esque tone to the crime itself.
3: The, the film it reminded me most of was The Big Short, right. Adam yeah. McKay's recent film, which takes, a, again, a quite a dry subject matter and spins it in this interesting way where... Basically, there's a lot of dramatic reenactments in this film as well. The whole thing's set up around these interviews with the actual... I guess they were done by the actual people involved Yeah, because
2: it begins with this line there's a line of text which I know you love at the start of the oh, film saying yeah. this film is is based on real irony free wildly contradictory and totally true interviews and then you see these I imagine these interviews reenacted by the actors which gives it a very weird um almost unconvincing tone at the, at the beginning but do you think the interviews ever took place I believe they did I think I think there were interviews Tonya was definitely
4: involved Mm. um, in the production of the film. She's been, like, sort of everywhere on the press trail for this. Which, again, like, the film itself concentrates... It's called I, Tonya. Like, it's it's all about her. And you kind of never uh, really get anything about Nancy Kerrigan, this girl whose career was almost ruined by one selfish moment. Mm. And it seems weird to me that... Craig Gillespie and Stephen Rogers have spent all this time trying to make you feel sympathetic towards a character who isn't very sympathetic.
2: Well, Although the, I guess the, the the suggestion of the film, the raison d'etre is, that, is the fact that while Nancy Kerrigan was very publicly the victim of this incident, in many ways Tonya Harding had been a victim just as seriously and for a much longer period, which is certainly a point that that Tonya herself makes during the film. The difficulty about that is, and again, I kind of preface this by saying it is a really entertaining, watchable film, as, as you've said, is the fact that one of the things that she's a victim of, apart from the abuse, is the enormous snobbery in ice skating. The fact that she's, a, as she puts it, a, a redneck doesn't really allow her to compete properly for prizes. But the film itself is complicit in that snobbery yeah. it adopts exactly the same almost sneering tone yeah. to her and her, her family that it complains of
4: i think the ice skating thing is, is actually what kind of interested me most i didn't realize how the, how that culture works and how it is all sort of about like being willing to jump through these hoops what i do find interesting so there's a great scene in the movie where tonya's arguing about having routines set to like uh, these metal tracks, and um, the Olympics this year have just allowed people to use pop music for the first time in their routines. I didn't know that was even a big deal, that they had to use um, sort of classical pieces of music. Without huh. without lyrics, I think, is the Olympic, uh, has always been the Olympic standard. This year we've had Coldplay, Ed Sheeran, Come What May from Moulin Rouge, you know, anything goes. Oh, my
2: word. Mm. Oh, my word. All right, well, you, you touched on Alison Janney and the supporting cast... While there are issues with this film, one of the reasons that it is very watchable is the is the performance of Janny, who's, I think, won a BAFTA and a Golden Globe already for, for her performance as the mother.
3: She has, yeah, and I think she's on course to pick up an Oscar in a couple of weeks as well. And, you know, not undeservedly so. I think she pantomimes it up slightly, but you can probably it's not much of a stretch to imagine that that is what the mother is like in real life. I mean, yeah. if it's based on these interview tapes the stuff with the cockatiel and the smoking. And I've
2: the- just recalled, actually, I'm sure some of these interviews actually do exist because there are little clips at, at the, the end, end yeah. that show you certainly the mother talking in an interview. Yeah, and she's got and the also, bird, yeah. And also Sean Eckard, the... Uh, Tanya's <laughs> bodyguard, in inverted commas, who is, for me, I want to watch a movie he's, just about him and his international show, espionage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Paul Walter Hauser is the the actor there. who well, I'm not familiar with his work. Extraordinarily John Candy-esque appearance, but just a magnificent portrayal of this delusional international counter-espionage expert. There's
3: one, the one line where he comes in and just says, we did it. And he's got this beaming face. I was in hysterics watching that. Bit, right. So you did it, enjoy this film, Emma. Yeah, I did. I think I was thrown off by it initially because I found it hard to reconcile or to square the subject matter and the amount of abuse that she is put through by her mother, by her husband. You know, I, I think Margot Robbie is very, very good in this film. At the same time, most of the she's spending being like smacked up against the wall. And mm. it's quite difficult to watch the tone is very comedic as we've discussed it clearly is coming from like an authorised point of view though and so much of the film although I think the subject of ice skating figure skating is probably quite a dull one do you think oh yeah yeah I mean I've, to glory. I've watched a bit of it during the Olympics and it's massively impressive I think but to it, watch as a spectacle the planet is
2: obsessed by whether the Canadian couple are doing it surely this is a massive oh massively... no no I
3: think I love Torval and Dean and watching mm. all of this stuff in the moment is great but like so much of I, Tonya, is about, you know, her practice and all the work that she puts into it. And I just think that is quite uncinematic. Although, okay. although the narrative arc, it needs it for that. So much of the film is around her doing this fated triple axel. Mm. Which I watched someone do in an Olympic qualifier the other day, just like... You know, just part of her routine. Right, back when she did it, of course, she was the first woman to land one. Well, exactly, yeah, one. and 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 you get that. Okay, this is a momentous thing; it's significant, mm. but they really overplay it. I think in the film, Do you think? yeah, when the moment comes, it's like a bit of an anticlimax. Um, I, I would agree; they undersell it when it does finally happen. When the film is dealing with such bigger ideas and themes, that for me just felt totally trivial.
2: All right. Did you know that Margot Robbie didn't have much skating experience in terms of figure skating, but she is a member of an amateur ice hockey league? Oh, cool. How oh, about that?
4: She's a, she's a cool girl, Margot Robbie. Mm. I like
2: Alison Jani, though, actually trained to become a figure skater before a, what sounds a pretty horrific injury uh, when she was 17. her having to give it up. Right. OK. Well, Hannah, what numbers will you give? I, Tonya.
4: In my review, I gave it a 4-3-3, but uh-huh. I think it's probably slipped to a 4-3-2 for Ooh. me. Yeah, I, I say I just can't... It's a well-made film, and it's got some good performances. For me, just the way it, it handles domestic violence just makes me so uncomfortable, and I don't think it's doing it to make you uncomfortable. I think it genuinely is doing it as a comedy thing, and, um, yeah, I, I can't get on with it in that way.
3: Adam? I would say a three-three-two. I think there's just a few aspects of it, specifically the comedic aspects that don't really sit right with me. Hmm. I understand that she is a more captivating subject than Nancy Carrigan may have been, but it's, it seems odd to frame her squarely as the victim of well, all this.
2: Yeah, but I think that it makes sense to choose her as the, the subject matter exactly, because yeah. there is a story to be told there, yeah. everybody assumed. And she complains towards the end of this film that she ended up as a punchline for all of America. The problem being, though, that this film makes her a punchline, well, in more ways than one. But it it kind of continues that, whilst at the same time giving her a backstory, which, which shows that ultimately, it is almost tragic what happened to her. She could have been... Well, we don't know what she could have been, but yeah. she's she's she works very hard for something which is ultimately taken for her. According to this film, and we're not yeah. clear exactly how factual this is, through no great fault of her own. I wasn't particularly looking forward to this film. I did enjoy watching it, maybe even a four, but looking back, I do have major issues mm. with it.
3: And, you know, two or a three, I guess, looking back. But it is fun to watch. There's, Tricky one. There's something in this film as well about you know, the fact that she's so single-minded and focused on her profession and her sporting dreams that she's kind of ignorant to everything that's going on around her. And I don't know, I feel like that is maybe doing a disservice to her or or maybe not a disservice, but maybe it's giving her a bit of a free pass, actually, of Mm. how much or to what extent she colluded with them around this incident. And just to say that her actions were sort of symptomatic of the fact that she is a victim of abuse, I think that's, yeah, it's a bit of a... Bit I of stretch, out. yeah I think a this,
4: this film frames it as though she had absolutely nothing to do with it i find it incredibly difficult to believe that was the case mm. but re- regardless of what you believe personally it's you know it's an entertaining film and i think um it's very well acted and very well made i just think it the script is very very questionable
2: fair enough by the way i suggested this might be the second most notorious sports story of recent decades. The other one is actually referenced and I think quite intentionally in this movie and it's o- the O.J. Simpson which is not a sports uh, thing but it's a, a sports thing. There's a bit where at
4: the TV- end yeah where the oh that's like the best bit uh-huh. when she turns on the TV and all the press are leaving because they see O.J. Simpson the chase is going on on the freeway and it's like this moment where you're like you realize like she's just a commodity she's just yeah
2: which you know, and I guess you could extrapolate that almost to the filmmakers because like the recent O.J. Simpson fiction with Cuba Gooding, this is almost taken by the studio for, as an opportunity for a little bit of a 80s, 90s nostalgia thing. Let's pile on the old tracks from the jukebox. Mm-hmm. Let's let's have a look at how people used to dress. All that kind of thing, rather than really addressing the story of a, of a terribly abused woman and, and some terrible choices she made. All right, then, on to our second film this week, which is... Dart River. Dart River, following the death of her father, Alice, played by Ruth Wilson, returns to her home 15 years after fleeing it, after systematic abuse, to claim the tenancy to the family farm, which she believes is rightfully hers. Adam, question one. What is
3: with all these British farming films? Yeah, Dark River, I think the victim possibly of uh, ill timing or an ill release schedule timing because I feel a little bit... OTT now, a bit bit overkill on the whole... We had the levelling. British miserabilism. Yeah, the levelling we had last year... ...was excellent. ...which is amazing, and God's Own Country. God's Own Country. If those two films hadn't been quite so spectacular, maybe my appetite for Dark River would have been a little bit... All right, so uh, you didn't
2: have much appetite for it.
3: No. And what did
2: you feel while watching it?
3: Well, actually, no, that's not fair. I did have appetite for it, based on Cleo Barnard's previous work, especially The Arbor, which was her breakthrough debut in 2010, which I would thoroughly recommend everyone seek out i didn't quite enjoy the selfish giant her follow-up as much that is a bit like ken loach light and this one again it's just i think it's just too familiar the themes it's dealing with the setting i think ruth wilson does some terrific work in this but she's the only one really pulling her weight i feel i'm not sure anyone else is really very good in this i don't know you've got like the ghost of sean bean wandering around as her abusive father he always dies well, in this one, he dies before yeah. you even see... You know, but he's before dead, EP that's comics, the main thing. He's he yeah. dead. There's um, a
2: couple of other Game of Thrones cast members as well. Oh, who are they? There's uh, Joe Dempsey, who plays Gendry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Or is it Gendry? Gendry, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And Mark Stanley, who's Gren, you know, one of the, uh, the Night's Watch.
3: Yeah, so Mark Stanley plays her brother in this. Mm. He's an interesting character who I would like to have learned a bit more about. He seems like he's bearing the entire weight of the world on his shoulders and huh. lets it out had- quite often against yeah. his sister yes you obviously find out a little bit more which i i can't go into here i don't want to get into spoiler territory but i don't know i feel like his character deserved a bit more backstory as well
2: yeah hannah how did you feel about dark river
4: yeah i didn't really like it very much like adam says we've had a kind of glut of uh films set on yorkshire farms recently and i grew up in the Yorkshire countryside, no so I'm very familiar with. Was it, it in a small town? <laughs> I, yeah, I grew up just outside of Sheffield, and um, in sort of like you know five minute drive from all this rolling greenery. Right. And um, it's not as miserable as people keep telling as what, it
2: is. well, you well maybe not on your farm, but theirs. <laughs> you know, it, um, it yeah, this one is. Well, yeah. What I found strange about this film actually was, given the kind of no nonsense reputation for which the Yorkshire Dales enjoy, this was a very very melodramatic. Approach to what is quite a delicate subject.
4: Mm. Yeah, I think the thing that got me about this compare it to God's Own Country, where the family dynamic is like very no nonsense and very sort of matter of fact. All this was so overwrought, and mm. there was just this unending bleakness to it from start to finish. It was exhausting, and not in kind of a oh my gosh, my emotions like this is up and oh. down. It was like just one note, like a total like misery on misery on misery, and. Oh. It just didn't work for me. I'm I'm really sick of filmmakers portraying the North, and um, particularly Yorkshire, as this unending place of bleakness. It's not, it's not like that. I think that's the note that God's Own Country stuck really well between the kind of harshness of the environment and the warmth of the people. This was just devoid of any sort of warmth.
3: Hmm.
2: I thought the levelling, which touches on some similar themes, hmm. was a really, really excellent film. This, I found, at times, almost... Can I say laughable? I don't know, because I'm really surprised at the the, the glowing reviews it's received. I, I thought the direction was pretty heavy-handed mm. in terms of some of the sound editing, particularly uh, there's one scene where it's the classic lookout over the farm and to the valley beyond, and there's thunder rolling in over the there's lots of stormy like, skies. There's lots
3: of heavy-handed metaphor and stock yeah. images of the countryside <laughs> and, you know, puddles and things like that. And then beyond that,
2: I really thought the acting was either bad or badly handled by the director. It was all kind of chewed lips and, and furrowed brows and basically what's the director's
3: name, sorry? Cleo Barnard.
2: It was basically backed up a tractor full of, of, of melodrama and just dumped it all over the film, I felt.
3: What do you think about Ruth Wilson in this?
2: I, she was all kind of, I'm going to chew my lip and look away and look pained. Mm. It was very much acting for the harder hearing, I felt. It has kind of the emotional nuance and yeah. increasingly towards the end the same kind of melodramatic approach of, of an Australian soap opera, I felt. Pitched at that kind of level. The brother, Joe, Almost farcically so.
3: He and his sister continually talk over each other. You know, their exchanges are often quite heated Mm. and quite dramatic, but they never actually seem to be having a conversation. They're just sort of screaming. One will scream at the other and the other will scream in return. It's
2: kind of acting by tantrum a lot of this.
3: I wonder whether, because Cleo Barnard's first film used essentially non-actors or um, unknown actors to dramatise and retell some of Andrea Dunbar's uh, poetry. And her second film, The Protagonist, is a young boy. Um, There are uh, older adult actors in there as well. But this is the first film I think she's made with like directing actual actors. And I mean, I'm willing to give her a free pass on this one, I think, and, and see what she does next still. But there is a lot of hopes pinned on her as a young, promising female British director. And I think, I don't know, I would like to see her challenge herself a little bit more, go somewhere else, just make a film about something else completely now because she's made two films back-to-back that are set in a very similar part of the UK, telling a quite similar story, actually. Almost what Andrea Arnold did with American Honey, although I had some issues with that film. The fact that she's gone and made that film, I think, was yeah quite a challenge for her, obviously, in getting out of her comfort zone. So, big fan of Claire Barnard. I hope she bounces back after this.
2: All right. What kind of numbers will she be bouncing back from, Adam?
3: So I'll give this a four in anticipation, Mm -hmm. despite my farming fatigue. Always excited to see what this director does. I think it would have to be a two and a two. Really? Yeah. others,
2: yeah. Okay. Hannah? Yeah, three, two, two. So why is it that so many reviews have gone for a whopping three stars out of five?
4: I don't know who's writing these reviews. Um, No one I know that's seen this film had that sort of reaction to it. Uh
2: Uh-huh. Things like uh, The Hollywood Reporter and and Variety have given it quite... But also The Guardian liked it.
4: I mean, with the American publications, I think they have a very very um, sort of set idea of what England is like sometimes. Uh I think they like this kind of like exotic, like, oh, look, look how windswept and uh, desolate everything is. And Hmm. also I think
3: they they will get things like God's Own Country possibly after it picks up some awards attention. Mm. But generally they don't get as many of these films as we do, right? So that's why... Traditionally, the films of like Ken Loach and Mike Lee always do very well, especially they're always in competition at Cannes because the international festivals, international press have almost like a fixation on this type of, this mode of British filmmaking. And mm. yeah, there is a surfeit of it now over here at the moment.
2: I'll just pitch in my numbers then, shall I? Go, go for it. I uh, wasn't that bothered about <laughs> it. Two, maybe then watching it, two-ish, one at the end. I really didn't like it. Sorry about that. Let's move on then hastily to this week's Film Club entry, American Beauty. A Lolita-esque neighbour, a frustrated suburban dad, and a plastic bag in Sam Mendes's classic examination of American suburban mores. Here are Thora Birch, Mina Savari, and Wes Bentley, a little bit later on, talking about life at high school.
0: Oh my God, that's the pervert who filmed me last night. Him? Jane, no way, he's a total lunatic. You know him? Yeah! We were on the same lunch shift when I was in ninth grade, and he would always say the most random, weird things. And then one day, he was just like, gone. And then, Connie Cardullo told me that his parents had to put him in a mental institution. Why? What did he do? What do you mean? Well, they can't put you away just for saying weird things. You total slut. You've got a crush on him What? Please You are defending him, you love him You want to have like 10,000 of his babies Shut up
3: Hi, my name's Ricky, I just moved next door to you
0: I know I kind of remember this really creepy incident Where you were filming me last night
4: I didn't mean to scare you I just think you're interesting
0: Thanks I really don't need to have some psycho obsessing about me right now
2: I'm not obsessing just curious question one what happened to Wes Bentley
4: yeah I know you know what I love Wes Bentley I had such a crush on him the first time I saw this film And um, you know what he's done since? Like nothing. He was in Pete's Dragon. Okay. With an excellent beard. Well, the, he, with the recent one. The recent one, the remake by the David Lowry. David Lowry, yeah. yeah, which I quite liked. And he was in American Horror Story. I'm just going to give you like a Wes. You know, I'm the foremost expert on Wes Bentley now. Suddenly, <laughs> but uh, it's him yeah. and Jake
3: Gyllenhaal circa Donnie Darko, isn't it? Those, yeah, it is. Those yeah. two are like emo pinups, and, and then Jake went on to hoover up me. all the yeah. Yeah. Oh.
4: yeah. I think that was the problem. It, you know, really? They look very similar, and Jake's just a better actor. So okay. It's it big enough
3: for the, both of them.
2: All right. Well, that was my question, but let's have a look then at, at what some listeners yeah. have said.
3: Well, I was really interested in, in revisiting this, because although it was a massively popular successful film at the time hmm. i think people now regard it as a bit of a troublesome affair and, and people often cite it alongside crash as being one of the worst ever best picture winners people like matthew carroll who calls it the single most
2: overrated film in history Whew, big shout matthew the peak of hollywood's disdain for middle america the finale literally relies on a darker version of a threes company misunderstanding i detested the film and the almost universal praise it's lazy and self-satisfied filmmaking Boom.
3: I've got to say, revisiting it, as much as there's some good acting in the mm. film, I don't think any of the characters feel like real people. OK.
4: No, not at all. They
3: all feel like quite crude caricatures that have been jammed into the same script together. And they're all sort of struggling for oxygen a bit.
2: In terms of the, the underlying message... Of the film, would you agree with Nick Davis, who says, although the main character is a white man, this movie is for everyone. We all have felt lost in a world of banality and trivial pursuits. This movie is in some ways comparable to Fight Club in the idea of embracing that we are the product of capitalist nothingness.
3: I don't know that it's anti capitalism really comes through as strongly as something like Fight Club. Uh It's certainly not as nihilistic, but yeah, I'm not sure it's quite as angry as that either. It feels a little bit less focused its ire is less focused in that direction for me. Okay. Hannah?
4: Yeah, so we chose this because we wanted to talk about Alison Janney's performance mm-hmm. since um, she's up for an Oscar much overdue for I, Tonya. Uh, We had a lovely comment from Angus Davies um, or Davis, Davies. He said that Jani was gifted a book by Sam Mendes before um, shooting began, a book of Edvard Munch paintings. And Sam Mendes said, Your character is in there somewhere. Which I would love to have known how Jani reacted to that. I can't imagine anything worse. And I love Edvard Munch, but someone's giving you a book and said, Yeah, it's in there somewhere.
3: Yeah, you it's know. in there somewhere. But I think Find he's kind it. of right.
4: You know, yeah? her character is a bit like a Munch. Uh, she sort of unravels. I'd forgotten we were we were talking about how little screen time she actually has in American Beauty, mm. but she does a lot with it. You get this kind of these snapshots of her across the course of the film.
2: Well, intriguingly, supposedly Mendes cut a lot of the dialogue between her and Colonel Fitz because he felt that the silence was actually the most important dynamic of their relationship
3: that's probably his shrewdest move actually in the mm. whole thing i think she does amazing work she certainly leaves or left the biggest impression on me having revisited this and if i was doling out uh, retrospective oscars i think it's a crime that she wasn't nominated in a supporting role for for this back in the day especially given that almost everyone else was who was involved and um yeah she just has this ghostly spectral presence in the film and she's a very tragic figure
2: Angus Davies, or Davies, touched on lots of other things, actually. In, in a lengthy missive, he calls the film a little contrived and even a bit glib, which is one of my favourite words. And he also touched on the fact that Fight Club was released in the same year. But he says it's aged poorly for similar reasons. I still like Fight Club. I still like Fight still Club. Like
4: Fight
2: Club. <laughs> yeah, I still like Fight Club.
4: Because that that's my great, like, going to be with the thing that I'm remembered for. I still like Fight
3: Club. Yeah, like, that and know. Wes
2: Bentley, to be fair. <laughs> Uh, ways of you listening what else
3: Adam uh, we got a comment from Nick I think it's Nick Davey. Um yeah just another point on Alison Janney says she just makes me feel so sad in the movie she's a passenger in a repressed man's life with a son so desperate to be himself and she's just not there small role but good performance Right.
4: she's the antithesis of uh, Annette Bedding's character Annette Bedding kind of like goes on this journey to kind of like emancipate herself from uh, Kevin Spacey's character and she is just she unravels. She's been so beaten down by her husband and by her stagnant life that by the end of the film she just wastes away. And uh, a, a similar sort of thing happens with her husband in the film as well. Like He goes from this like really macho character to his son standing up to him and he kind of loses all like power over him.
2: A quick shout-out to Astrowiz, who themselves have had a tiny midlife crisis, although not to the extent of Lester, they say, And some parts of this film were cringe-inducing as they were so spot-on. I've read a few recent reviews looking back on the film, but they fall into a somewhat modern, snarky way of reviewing it by critiquing what the film isn't rather than what it is. I
3: think that's a very fair comment. A Mm. lot of reviews these days do that, and that's a a real bugbear of mine, is people basically criticising what a film isn't rather than mm. what it is. And okay. I'd be really interested to see if this were, were to be remade, like what perspective it would be told from, and how certain things, like the characters, essentially all dealing with various forms of mental health issues. Um, well, they
2: get Christopher Plummer in for a start? Would they? I mean, yeah. maybe. Uh, Astroways calls it melancholy, but also hilarious, something of a masterpiece, to be honest. So there you go. Another question from me would be, why Sam Mendes make such bad films now? Because his Bond films are all rubbish.
4: Oh, so it would have been. I a agree Spectre. that his
3: Bond films are bad. Yeah, they are. No, yeah, I agree. I yeah. don't think he is a bad director. No, I quite like the film Revolutionary Road. Oh, I never saw that
2: with Leonardo DiCaprio with Leo and, Kate and Kate Winslet, Kate,
3: which is again people tend not to like that film so much.
2: Speaking of Kate Winslet, mm. when I read out that comment earlier about. This is the most overrated, what was it, Matthew Carroll's single most overrated film in history. Adam, you then kind of nominated a subcategory, most overrated Oscar winner for Best Picture in history. And I immediately said Terms of Endearment. And then Hannah, you said Titanic, with Kate Winslet, of course.
4: If there's anyone else out there who agrees with me, please get in touch, because I feel victimised by everyone's love of really? Titanic. I think it's a terrible movie. Terrible movie. Terrible, terrible film, and I feel like I'm the only person who has that opinion. I'll, so. tell you, I'll tell
3: you what we should do. Yes? Because the Oscars are coming up. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you knew. hmm I reckon we should do a shout-out, or get people to write in with their pick for the best ever, best picture winner. Best ever? Yeah. And we'll revisit that. Because we've, we've done one which kind of ticks the box of maybe not the best ever. Right. So why don't we do that for a, co- a couple that. of weeks? Let's do So, yeah, if any listeners have got a suggestion, and then the one with the most votes will yeah, propose next week's pictures. show. Best
2: ever Oscar of Oscars. We'll do an Oscar special. All right. Uh, just on the subject of little gold statuettes, did you know of the Best Picture winners in the 1990s, this and one other film were the only ones not to be period pieces. All the other ones were period pieces. Do you know what the other film was? 1990s Oscar winner.
4: (sighs) I was born in 1992, so no. Yeah,
2: but you're a student (laughs) of film history. Shall I just tell you what it is? Listeners, are you ready? No,
3: I I, I want to...
2: Okay. I tell you what, we'll come back to that at the end. Okay. First, let me ask you what on earth we're going to be talking about next week. On Truth and Movies.
3: Well, among other things, I mean, we've got a couple of new films, as always, to review. So nice. I think hopefully we're going to do Red Sparrow. Red Sparrow, which is the Jennifer Lawrence kind sort of Cold War Jennifer, espionage Jennifer Lawrence thing. Cold War spy right. movie. Okay. And um, we're also going to be doing A Fantastic Woman, which is Sebastian Lelio's film about a transgender woman.
2: Okay. And also coming out next week is Game Night. Game Night, yes, with... Uh, Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. Who else is in it, Hannah?
4: Rachel McAdams. You're going
2: to see it tomorrow night, aren't you?
4: Yeah. Kyle Chandler, I think. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: I really want to see that film, (laughs) but I can't tomorrow evening. What are you doing? Oh, just stuff. Other stuff.
3: Not movie related. Not movie related.
2: No, no, maybe I'll get to see it next week. Who knows? But I'll find out more from David Jenko Jenkins. Yeah. And who else is joining
3: us next week? Elena. Uh, Hopefully Elena Lazic. Elena Lazic. Uh, And we're also for Film Club. For Film Club? We have got upcoming uh, a new series of essays looking at the intersection between uh, hip-hop culture and Mm -hmm. movies in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Sort of four or five films which basically had a big impact on hip-hop culture. Uh, And the first one we're looking at is Abel Ferreira's 1990 film uh, King of New York. With Christopher Walken? With Christopher Walken, yeah.
2: Crikey. Well, that'll be a treat then, eh?
3: So please do give that a a, a whiz and... uh, that whiz, so. yeah no that's right. is it available it is you can rent it online okay good and I think in certain regions it's on Netflix as well but huh? yeah do give that a whirl and, and drop us your, your thoughts
2: super okay if you do have thoughts that you want to drop us truthandmovies at tcolondon.com is the email address at Lies on Twitter Facebook and the website of course also available anything else you want to mention Hannah before I reveal the exciting answer to that trivia question
4: can I just say, I just got back from Bella Nala. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's well, a great shout yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not out here till the end of March, but Isle of Dogs is absolutely wonderful, so I just want to right. hy- hype everyone up for Where's so. Anderson's new? Yeah, his new canine, Caper. Right. It's, it's very, very good.
2: Okay, so. what else did you see there that really caught your eye? Oh,
4: um, I saw Gus Van Sant's new film, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, which is an odd sort of film. It's new Joaquin Phoenix. Sat in a room in Joaquin Phoenix as well. That man does not like press interviews at all, which mm-hmm. was quite fun to watch. Other than that, I saw some European stuff, uh-huh. saw a really good documentary called Generation Wealth about um, fame and the pursuit of money, which is one to watch out for later this year. Yeah. Okay.
2: But particularly Isle of Dogs.
4: <laughs> Isle of Dogs, definitely
2: 100%. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, that other 1990s Best Picture winner was 1991's The Silence of the Lambs.
3: Uh, of course. Uh. Oh, well, that's great a deserved win. Do you reckon? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, love always, I always felt
2: that. Yeah, my issue, and sorry, listeners, you've got things to do, but just just quickly to say my issue with that film was I enjoyed Manhunter so much that I really reacted in much the same way you do. You almost take it personally, the the, the praise that Titanic receives. <laughs> it was such a great performance from Brian Cox as Dr. Hannibal Lecter that when Anthony Hopkins came in and did his big chewing up a man's liver but also all the scenery available as well <laughs> I just thought, no this is really obvious stuff
4: his performance his screen time was so short and he got an, an Oscar for it as well did he? I think he's only on screen for about 15 minutes all mm. in
3: and yeah, who, he got, who? Hopkins? yeah
2: put me right yeah. off Hopkins that film did really? yeah until Westworld in really? which I thought
3: oh, he was amazing brilliant Westworld yeah. yeah interesting that Hopkins and Elector are so synonymous now and I know no one really thinks of the Brian Cox I, mean, I know which was just a, yeah. a much better performance
4: Which they then remade as uh, Red Dragon.
3: Yeah, of course they did, yeah.
2: Uh. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, (laughs) listeners,
1: I really really trailed off this.
2: We'll leave it there. We'll we'll catch up with you, I hope, next Wednesday. Meantime, many thanks to Hannah and Adam and see you soon. And this has been a 7 Digital Production.